when I was younger, I had really, really messed up teeth. <laughs> like, I couldn't even close my mouth because my teeth were sticking out. And so I had to go to the orthodontist and have braces, not once, but twice. And I remember being at the orthodontist, and he always used to have these Where's Waldo books sitting there. How many of you guys remember Where's Waldo? A few of you? Okay, now, when you read Where, Where's Waldo books, at first you feel pretty confident. Like, oh, he's really easy to find, right? You open the first page, there's three people. They all have, like, black on, and then there's Waldo in red and white. You're like, oh, there he is. But as you continue to go on with the book, by the last page, I'm in the orthodontist's office for like 10 minutes. I can't find Waldo anywhere because everyone has red, everyone has white, everyone has caps. I'm like, where is Waldo? Now, and the same thing is true in the Bible. I, if I told you find Jesus in the New Testament in these 27 books in the New Testament, it would be easy. Any page of the New Testament, you can pretty much find the name Jesus. But when you go to the Old Testament, how many of you have seen Jesus' name before? The name Jesus, Christ at least, is not found in the New Te Old Testament. What if I told you he's all over the place in the Old Testament? That's why these next three weeks, we want to spend time finding Jesus in the Old Testament. It's kind of like, where's Waldo? It's hard to find, but when you see it, you're like, aha, there it is. And it's so great that we're going to be doing this because we are a few weeks away from Good Friday and Easter. How is that even possible? And we want to just spend some time focusing on Jesus, but focusing on what does the Old Testament have to say about Jesus? Now, I'm going to drop a shameless plug here at this point, okay? This coming Saturday from 9 to 11 a.m., I'm teaching a class at our Sandusky campus called uh, Making Sense of the Bible. If you haven't signed up for it, there's still a few spots left. We're almost getting full. But I'm going to help you make sense of the Old Testament, the New Testament. For two hours, we're going to jump into it. But until, if you can't make it, it's okay. These next three weeks are going to be a great time for you to maybe learn how to discover Jesus in the Old Testament for yourself. For instance, next week, Pastor Charles will be here, and he's going to talk about the Old Testament law. You see, God give the law to the Israelites, and we're not under the law anymore as Christians, but then what do you do with the Old Testament? He's going to help you make sense of that. The week after that, we're going to look at the prophetic, the prophetic literature, like the book of Isaiah, and how do we see Jesus in there. But today, we're going to start in the beginning. I'm going to show you in the first three chapters, chapter three of Genesis, how Jesus shows up, even though you don't see his name. Here's what happens in Genesis 3. Let me click through this real quick here. Genesis 3, 15. Here's what God says, actually, to the serpent, which is Satan in this point. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What in the world does this mean? This is called the proto-euangelion. Don't I sound really smart? The proto-euangelion. It means the first gospel. This is about Jesus Christ right here. You see, in Genesis 1 and 2, God made the earth, and it was what? Good. It was so good. It was so good, you didn't have to count calories. You didn't have to exercise. It was so good that 
people were naked and it wasn't weird? You didn't get the cops called on you? It was beautiful. The stars, the sun, the atmosphere, the relationship with God, it was perfect. It's what you and I long for, and yet we don't have right now. Everything was so good until we turn the page to Genesis 3. See, Adam and Eve, they recognized that God created them, God created everything. And yet, Adam and Eve got to the point where they said, look, you did a good job creating, and you keep doing that, but we don't want you to lead us anymore. We can make decisions for ourselves. We want to be God. That's called pride. When we think we know everything, when we're selfish and self-consumed, and we think we can be the God of our own lives, that's pride. And pride comes in and it separates us from God. And we see that happen to Adam and Eve. Immediately their eyes were opened. Instead of walking around shamelessly, they were shame filled at what they saw. They were kicked out of the garden because that's where God's presence was. They couldn't be in his presence anymore because of sin. So what does God do with that? He could have just said, okay, Adam and Eve, you said you wanted to be God. You figure it out. God doesn't do that. Genesis 3.15 is the beginning of what we will call a rescue mission from God himself. And when he's talking to Satan, he said, look, there is one to come that you're going to mess with his people and you can mess with his creation and you're only going to be able to strike its heel. But there is one to come that's going to crush you, that's going to kill you, that's going to restore humanity, that's going to get rid of evil and death itself. A, one, a person to come that's going to bring God and his people together forever. This is why we can see Jesus here, because God is talking about Jesus. It's the first gospel in all the Bible. And he makes this promise. Now, thankfully, for the Israelites to come and for us today, God makes this promise that the enemy's not going to win but God, in the end, through Christ, is going to win because it starts to get very, very messy quickly. For instance, we have Genesis 4. It's a story of Cain and Abel. God tells Cain, hey, look, sin is crouching at your door. If you open that door, you are going to do some things you're going to regret. And what does he do? Kills his brother. Now, just a side comment. The same thing is true for you and I. There's knocking at your door. Sin is crouching. It's looking to attack. Don't open that door. It can wreak havoc on your life, just like it did then. So right after we see the promise that Jesus is coming, thankfully, he's coming someday because we already have murder in the fourth chapter of the Bible. Then we get to the sixth chapter of the Bible, and God is like, this is a disaster. Humanity is run by sin. They're disregarding God altogether. He is grieved. By their sin to the point where he allows the flood of judgment to come. Now he spares a family, Noah and his family, and he's going to start over with them. But then we see in chapter 7, Noah's like, thanks God, but then he gets super drunk and does some stupid things. His son does some stupid things sexually, and then it continues to go downhill into 8, 9, 10, and then chapter 11. 
Chapter 11, we see the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is a symbol of selfishness and pride. Literally, humanity is like, we are so awesome. We don't need God. We can do this ourselves. And let's, let's erect a tower so tall that shows how great we really are. And God's like, okay, enough. I can't keep doing this anymore. I made a promise in Genesis 3.15, and I'm going to keep that promise. But look, you're going to have to face some consequences. So what does he do? He spreads all the people around. He casts them everywhere, and he confuses the language so they can't even interact anymore. And because of that, that was the beginning. Now, you know how many different people groups and languages we have in the world? 17,000 started in Genesis 11 when humanity thought they didn't need God. Now, if you were God, what would you do in a situation? You're looking out, and you're like, I brought a flood. That didn't work. I'm casting them everywhere. That's probably not going to work. What do I do? God, what he says is I'm going to continue to fulfill my promise. I'm going to fulfill my promise someday in Jesus. I promised it in Genesis 3.15. I know my people are out of control, but I'm going to do some great things to point to Christ. And one of the greatest things that he does, we see in Genesis chapter 12. Open your Bibles to chapter 12 in Genesis. I'm going to fix my microphone while I'm having you turn the Bible. There we go. Genesis 12, we see how God's mission to redeem his people is going to start being fulfilled through this man named Abraham. Now, we're going to see pretty quickly, his name is Abram. God changes his name to Abraham, which means many nations, father of many nations. But what you're going to notice, before I put this passage up, you're going to see a lot of language that says, I will, I will, I will. It's really beautiful. Because fast forward to Genesis 15, God is going to make a promise to Abraham. And he's going to fulfill that promise through a covenant. Now, a covenant is this. If you and I made an agreement, and I made a covenant with you, and you broke that agreement, I still will fulfill it. Because that's what covenants are. One person, even though if they break their promise, God doesn't. And we're going to see that God will continue to keep his promise to Abraham. And we'll see this language when he first calls Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 with this, I will, I will, I will. Pay attention to it. Here it is. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abraham, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family, and go to a land that I will show you. Now, they're about to go two, three hundred miles. He's going to leave Ur, which is modern-day Iraq. He's going to go to Canaan, which is modern-day uh, Israel. And we may say two or three hundred miles. We can get there by car in two to three to four hours, depending how fast you drive. And we may think, what's the big deal? But I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He says, a journey of two to three hundred miles was an event only second to death itself. Back then, they didn't travel like we travel now. And to go from your native land, from your own family, that had been a death sentence, they thought. So what does Abram do? God continues on. He says, if you will go, if you will trust me, I will. There it is. I will 
make you into a great nation. There it is again. I will bless you and make you famous. And then pay attention to this. I will bless you through land, through nations, through my promises, and then you will what? Be a blessing to others. He goes on to say this. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. You know, oftentimes when someone uses the term, I want to get a little religious. I want to start going to church. I want to uh, bring God back into my life. What we're really saying is this. God, I want you to bless me. I need some things for you, some money, some, some good fortune, whatever it is. And once you bless me, I'm going to put you back in my back pocket. And then when I need you to bless me again, I'm going to bring you back out and then put it away. Bring you back out, put it away. Do you ever have a rabbit's foot when you were growing up? I did. A lot of times we treat God like a rabbit's foot. It's good luck charm. Hopefully he blesses us. Others of us, when we invite God into our life, what we're saying is we want to clean up our life. We want to be good people. We want to throw a little morality in this immoral person. And hopefully at the end, it'll all shake out to be a better person. But with Abraham, God doesn't say, hey, bring me out whenever you need me. He doesn't say, become a moral person. He's saying, follow me. Leave everything you know and follow me. John Calvin says it this way. When I think of the story of Abraham, I imagine Abraham just closing his eyes in fear, but also in trust, and grabbing God's hand as God says to me, grab my hand and trust me. And I feel like that's probably what Abraham was going through. He was scared. He was giving everything up, but he wasn't to become a more moral person. He wasn't to put God in his back pocket. He was to start a new life and to create that new life. He had to leave his old life behind and follow where God wanted him to go. And we see in Genesis 15, he obeys God. He counts that obedience as righteousness. And here's why that is so important. Jesus promised, Genesis 3.15, that it would be fulfilled someday in Christ but he was looking at some people to choose them to be heirs of that promise, to be people who would, be, who would literally bring that into existence. And that's what Abraham does. Abraham, because he was blessed by God, was going to be a blessing to others. One of the quotes that really sticks out to me, and it's actually in a form of a question I want to ask you this morning, is are you a reservoir or are you a river? Norwalk Reservoir, we all know what that is. Water is there and it's contained, but it's stale. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't bring life to anything around it. It just comes and sits. A river, the water gathers, it flows, giving life to everything that it comes in contact with. Can you imagine how blessed Abraham would have been just to be favored by God, just to know that God reached out to him? I mean, Abraham was a worshiper of a false god, a moon goddess named Nana. Who is Abraham? And yet God touched him and said, I'm going to make you great if you will follow me. He was blessed. 
But he wasn't a reservoir. He didn't just keep it for himself. He became a river. And because he was a blessing to other people, and he trusted God, we see that blessing go to Isaac, his son. We see that blessing go to his grandson, Jacob. We start to see all these blessings through this people group of Israel. And then it gets really messy, and God's relationship with Israel is up and down and up and down. But God will still keep his promise in Genesis 3.15. God will still keep his promise to Abraham because he made a covenant, and he will be great. That many, many people will have a relationship with God, the nations, because of Abraham. And we see that all the way through. And then we see throughout the Old Testament this promise of a Messiah to come. It's going to fulfill Genesis 3.15. It's going to fulfill this Abraham, Abrahamic covenant. It's going to fulfill all of these things because uh, Abraham was blessed to be a blessing. He followed God. He did what was asked of him. He trusted him. And because of that, we see right at the beginning of the New Testament this about Jesus. This is the record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah. Where did Jesus come from? David. Who's a descendant of who? Abraham. Abraham knew he was blessed, that he was to be a blessing to the other nations. And because he fulfilled that, all the way through, when it got messy and hard, we see God fulfilling his promise all the way through predicting Jesus. And it's Jesus was here because he was in the same lineage as Abraham. What was promised through Abraham was fulfilled in Jesus. Isn't that incredible? You see Jesus in Genesis 3.15. You see Jesus and Abraham all the way through, and the promise that Abraham couldn't truly fulfill in himself was fulfilled by God through Christ, who is descendant of Abraham. Look at the impact that he had. Paul, who writes a lot about Abraham, says this in Galatians 3.14, Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised to Abraham. So that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Abraham trusted God. He left his old life behind to follow him. And because he was blessed to be a blessing, we, through Christ, are recipient of that blessing. All because a guy named Abraham trusted God. And God made him great. Or when Paul says this in Galatians 3.29, And now that you belong to Christ, you're a child of Abraham. And he says, you're going to have many children and many nations because Abraham believed God. We are a part of his promise. We are a child of not just Jesus, but of Abraham. You are his heirs. God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. When I think of Abraham's impact, he wasn't a reservoir. He doesn't just say, oh, man, I want to be just blessed. He was a blessing to others. It went all the way through to Christ, now to us. And now close the loop. 
we see Genesis, it started out good, it got bad, it got worse, it got really good when Jesus came back. It's pretty bad now, but then guess what? We see in Revelation 20, 20, or 22 that Jesus is going to restore everything back to the original creation. It's going to be good again. Speaking of Revelation, starting this summer, the entire summer, we are going to be preaching on the book of Revelation the whole time. We want to look at what Revelation really has to say and figure it out together. But honestly, you could walk away the overarching message of Revelation. We mess it up, and God's going to fix it. And what's so beautiful is, yes, Jesus fulfills it. And yes, it's God who gets the glory. And yes, we will reign with him forever. But according to Paul and according to even Jesus' lineage, it all started back when Abraham believed and trusted that God fulfilled his promise through Abraham and he was a blessing to other people including you and me what an impact what a legacy and why I bring this story up to you hopefully you can see yeah Jesus is promised here and oh we get to see him we get to see that promise through Abraham and others and we see it fulfilled in Christ but it's what Christopher Wright says, if we are in Christ, we are not only to share in the blessings of Abraham, we are commissioned to spread the blessing of Abraham. Blessed to be a blessing. God chose you like he chose Abraham. Not to become stale and keep it for yourself, but to have a river flow through you so life can be had through your life into other people's lives. Billy Graham is a guy who's obviously many people know Jesus because of what he has done. In fact, today's my mother-in-law's birthday. That's how she came to know Christ, grew up Catholic, turned Billy Graham on the TV, and she gave her life to Christ, and it's incredible. But Billy Graham, he was praying for these uh, college students one time, and, and, he, and he prayed this to them. He says, come to me, be forgiven. Come to me and find life. Come to me and get rest for your souls. He's telling these college students, look, when you come to Jesus, you can be forgiven. You can find life. You can get rest for your souls. And all of us are like, yes, amen. I need that. We are blessed. But that's not the end of the prayer. Now go into the world. Now go and make disciples of all nations. Now go be my witnesses everywhere, nearby and far away. Abraham was blessed to be a blessing. We see that fulfilled in Christ, and now we as Christ followers are blessed to be a blessing to other people. I see too many Christians who love to receive and to be in Bible studies and to study scripture and to pray and all of those things, and that is great. We have to start there. You have to be blessed first. But I don't see a lot of Christians then going out and being a blessing to others. Don't be a reservoir and be stale. Be a river and let what God has done in you through Christ flow out of you so that you can have an impact just like Abraham had because he trusted God. Amen. Thank you. I want to give you three ways to do this. 
first, and I just alluded to it, you cannot be a blessing to others unless you've first been blessed by God. We need to continue to spend time with Jesus in his word, at church, in prayer, and those things are really, really good. But then, you can't let it just stay there. You now have to be a blessing. I'm going to give you three ways you can do this today. And they're going to start with three F's, so hopefully you can remember. First is your faith. People say faith is meant to be private. The problem is it's just not. We can't keep private what God has done in our lives. We don't need to be annoying. We need to be faithful. We have a river flow through us. Like my mission, even in my own life, is like, God, I want people to be with me and then leave and think differently about Jesus because they were with me. Hopefully positively, not negatively. <laughs> you and I, whether it's with our friends or family or coworkers, we need to let God, who has blessed us with eternal salvation, we need to bless others the same way. Are you a river when it comes to your faith? Is it flowing through you or is it just stagnant in your life? The second one is family. I don't know about you. If you and I hung out, it would be a lot easier for me to be nicer to you than to my own kids. <laughs> Why is it that our families get the short end of the stick in our lives? Why is it that we can be patient with everybody else, but we lose it on our kids? Why is it that we're kind to everybody else, but we're a jerk to our spouse? You are blessed with the Holy Spirit to be a blessing to others, including the people I just talked about. Would your family say, oh yeah, they're blessed, and I know they're blessed because they're a blessing to me. If not, you need to start asking God to work in and through you so you can live a legacy just like Abraham did. The third is finances. Even if you have an extra quarter to your name, you can bless, you're blessed to be a blessing. I remember when we were in Grand Rapids, we were going through a really hard time. My son, uh, just diagnosed with epilepsy, seizing all the time. I'm barely at home because I'm studying and I'm going to school for my master's. I'm also working full-time. Paul, uh, Paul is essentially a single mom trying to raise a son on her own because her family's all in Sandusky. And, and she's trying to navigate all of these different issues with our son. It was just so hard. And we had our, these friends who were wealthy. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> and they sent us a card, and in it was $100. $100 is like a million. Like, this is incredible. And in the card were your instructions. It said, you cannot use this to pay bills. You have to use it to enjoy it. Go buy a book, go buy a coffee, go on a date, order some food, whatever you want to do. But we, we've been blessed, and we want to be a blessing to you. And I'm telling you, $100 doesn't go a long, long way. But it wasn't even the amount of money. It was what was behind it that really helped Paul and I get through a really, really difficult time. Like I said, my friends are wealthy. They didn't drive Maseratis and drink expensive wine. That's what I think of when rich people do stuff like that. But they had more than they needed, and they gave it away. Even if you have an extra quarter. 
are you being a blessing with the things that God gave you? Because if so, you're blessed. How, what are you going to do with that to make an impact in people's lives? I think back to Abraham. If he wouldn't have truly left, I don't know where I'd be today. He, he was blessed, but he was blessed to be a blessing. Same is true in your life. You're blessed to be a river of blessing, to give life to people. So maybe someday someone could say, I don't know what I would do if it wasn't for that person. Be blessed to be a blessing today. Let's pray together. Lord, I love that we see Jesus in Genesis 3. I love that you start to inch towards fulfilling that promise through Abraham. And then you fulfill that in Jesus. But when we read about Jesus, we read about Abraham and how they go together. You blessed Abraham to be a blessing to the nations, to people groups like us. And we are here today, yes, because of Jesus, but also because of Abraham. Lord, I just pray that we would be known as an Abraham. That you will bless us so we can bless other people. That's what we're called to be as Christ followers. Help us get over ourselves and our selfishness. Help us to be a river of blessing that brings life to this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great Sunday.